Welcome to the Words for Life podcast, which highlights the preaching and teaching ministry of Liberty Heights Church. In today's message, we will take a detailed look at an outrageous encounter that Jesus had with Mary of Bethany just six days before his crucifixion. Join Pastor Chris Anderson in our Journey to the Cross series as he teaches from John chapter 12 in a message titled Lessons from a Completely Sold Out Follower of Jesus. These so-called Swifties are a little crazy. Now, for uh, you older folks that are a little more mature, uh, you may remember the hoopla surrounding Elvis or the Beatles. It's the same type of thing. It's that big of a deal. This past week, there was actually an Instagram page that tracked the private jet, the tail number of the private jet of the plane that flew Taylor Swift from her last concert venue in Tokyo all the way to Las Vegas for the Super Bowl. And women all over the world watched with bated breath as to whether or not she was going to get to the Super Bowl on time. In fact, the NFL has done a good job of cashing in on her, and we got to see her many times throughout the broadcast. And whether it's Taylor Swift, whether it's the Beatles, whether it's the Elvis, maybe it was the Rolling Stones for you, you don't have to look very hard to see the crazy things that people will do to show their affection for their heroes. It's as if uh, they, they lose all sense of, of time and place. They're, the object of their affection becomes the only thing that they are focused on. Nothing else matters, and it leaves the rest of us scratching our head and wonder as to what is going on. Well, turn with me this morning. We're going to take a hard right into John chapter 12, and we're going to see something that was so over the top Uh, It was this Jesus follower did something that was so crazy, so nuts, uh, that it left everybody in the room scratching their heads as to what in the world was happening. It was that audacious. When you turn into John chapter 12, let me remind you where we're at in our series, Journey to the Cross. You may remember a couple weeks ago, it was in Luke chapter 9, and so that's where all the Gospels line up. We're looking from that point forward when Jesus said he, uh, it says he set his face toward Jerusalem. It was at that moment that he had this singular focus, that it was the march to the cross. And so we are exploring some of the encounters that he had along the way. Now, he has already made the journey all the way up from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to Jericho. That's about a a 90-mile walk, and so that would be the equivalent of walking from here to Columbus. And uh, the last two weeks, we encountered him in Jericho, first with uh, Bartimaeus and then with Zacchaeus. And now in today's, uh, where the story is set today, he has already traveled about 15 miles. He's climbed uphill towards Jerusalem, towards the city, the big city. And he's gotten all the way, all the way to Jerusalem, to the outer wall, to the, to the little village of Bethany that sits just outside the gate of Jerusalem. And that's where we find ourselves in this village of Bethany in John chapter 12, as I read verses 1 through 8. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who he was about to betray him, said this, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, 
But because he was a thief, having charge of the money bag, he to help himself to what would into it. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with me, but you do not always have me. Let me set the stage real quickly. Lazarus and Mary and Martha uh, were siblings. And somehow they had become close friends with Jesus. We don't know how they met. Perhaps it was at the temple over the years. Perhaps their their families knew each other. But they had become, even though they were from different areas uh, in Israel, they were um, friends somehow. And one month earlier, you may remember the story in John chapter 11, Lazarus tragically dies. And Jesus is called in, but he gets there too late. And it says that his body was already decomposing But Jesus spoke him back to life with just his words, brings him back to life. And so here they are, they're all back together here this evening. And uh, Lazarus is uh, kind of the, 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 the life of the party here. And Jesus and this entire crowd that had traveled with Jesus, we only see a couple of these characters named. But evidently Jesus was with a large group and so it was almost like a banquet. And here's Lazarus and Jesus at the place of honor. But the focus this morning is not on Lazarus. That was in chapter 11. The focus here in chapter 12 is Lazarus' sister, Mary. And culturally speaking, she begins to act like an unhinged fanatic, a a swifty, if you will. It lost her ever-loving mind. And so to show you that I am culturally relevant this morning, that I'm still kind of cool, we're going to call this message Swifties for Jesus. Amen? And here we are, the gospel of John. God in his sovereignty, for some reason, has chosen to include this. And so maybe a better name for this message is lessons to learn from a completely sold out follower of Jesus Christ. And so this ancient Swifty Mary of Bethany is her name this morning. She'll be our focus. And the very first thing that I want you to see, the very first thing that jumps off the page at me is this lesson to be willing to sacrifice everything. Be willing to sacrifice everything. Look back at verse 3 again. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from this pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I love how the Apostle John vividly recalls the fragrance of this perfume. Keep in mind that John wrote these words 50 years after they happened, and yet the thing, the detail that he remembers is the fragrance of the room. Don't you love how a smell can take you back to a place in time? Have you ever noticed that? Uh, for me, I, I am, uh, I'm not really a coffee guy. I'm probably one of the few guys in the room this morning that does not appreciate a good cup of coffee. Okay, they say it's an acquired taste. I don't know why you would want to acquire that taste. It's bitter. It's terrible. Uh, when we travel to Guatemala, uh, we travel to the highlands of Lake Atitlan. It's this area up in the mountains, and it's where they grow some of the best coffee for the entire world. And you can walk right outside your hotel, and you can pick the beans, and they roast them there locally. And they say, this is the greatest cup of coffee. You've got to try it. And I sip it, and it tastes like the same crap back here in America. I hate coffee. I hate the taste of coffee. But I'm weird in that I love the smell of coffee. Because it takes me back to a place in time. When I smell coffee, it takes me back to my grandma and grandpa's house. 
And growing up when I was little, I would wake up to the sound of bacon sizzling on the stove and coffee, fresh coffee being brewed. And my grandma and grandpa would pour it in these little white saucers. Now, I thought this was normal. I later found out this was weird, but they put it in these little white saucers to cool it down so they could drink it more quickly, and then they would drink it out of these little cups. And so I hate the taste of coffee, but I love the smell because it takes me back to this place in time, these wonderful memories with my grandma and grandpa. And here in John chapter 12, this minute little detail helps cement the memory of this event into John's mind to where he can recall it 50 years later. He can recall the potency of this perfume, the extraordinary amount that had been used that evening. Now John, in this verse, verse 3, describes this word as both ointment and perfume. To describe this anointing oil, you might know it by a different name as myrrh. Remember the the wise men brought Jesus the gold, the frankincense, and the the myrrh. Nard was this incredibly expensive uh, fragrance. It had uh, antibacterial, it had anti-inflammatory qualities. That's why they call it an ointment. And a normal container of this product, a normal container of this perfume, would have been the equivalent of just an ounce or two, just a small little eyedropper of this product. It was that potent. But John recalls it wasn't just a few drops of perfume. It was this huge amount equivalent to what our modern-day measurement of 12 ounces would be, so almost the equivalent of a can of Coke. Later in this passage, we find out that this perfume was worth 300 denarii, which was equivalent to about an entire year's wages for a common laborer. Uh, The reason that nard was so expensive is because it was extracted from this plant that only grew in the mountains of northern India. And and the process to extract this oil uh, from the plant was a a delicate process. It was hard to do. It was hard to transport it then into the rest of the trade routes and to the rest of the known world. So it was very expensive. In fact, The only way that Mary probably could have owned something of this incredible value was that it was a precious family heirloom, perhaps passed down from a a grandmother or a great-grandmother. Now, ordinarily, this type of expensive oil would be kept in what was known as an alabaster flask. It would have been marble that was carved, uh, Egyptian marble, the the flask itself would have been very valuable. It would have uh, had a very long neck on it with a a narrow opening at the top so that if it spilled, only a few ounces would come out. And so in this case, evidently, Mary wasn't content to pour out just a few drops, and so she probably would have broken the flask off of this, uh, the neck off this flask, rendering it valueless. So that she could pour out the entire 12 ounces onto the feet of Jesus. You say, well, Chris, why are you sharing all of this detail about this little flask of oil? Here's why it's so significant. Here's why it's so significant as to what she was doing. She took the thing that was most precious to her. The most valuable thing that she owned that she could find in her possession. And she poured it all out at the feet of Jesus. She searched her house. This would be the equivalent of something that costs tens of thousands of dollars. Could you imagine that? The thing of greatest value to her. And she poured it all out, never to be used again, in the feet of Jesus. This week I was thinking 
Like, what would have compelled her to do this? And I wrestled with this question, and I I spent a lot of time uh, looking at commentaries and reading what other people had said about this. Was it because that Jesus had, had brought her brother back to life? Was this her way of thanking Jesus? And in some ways, that's probably some of the emotion that she was feeling in the moment. She was incredibly thankful. She she was incredibly grateful that she could spend this extra time with her brother. But I think the real motivation is that she had come to a place where she was completely convinced that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and worthy of her worship. You know, the the reason that John wrote the, uh, the gospel account Uh, We already had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the reason why 50 years later he comes along and and writes the Gospel of John was to defend the divinity of Jesus. There was a well-known heretic that had come along uh, about 40 or 50 years after Jesus' name was Serentis. And Serentis was this Gnostic Jew that said Jesus, uh, he he couldn't deny the existence of Jesus. There had been uh, eyewitnesses to what had happened. But he said Jesus wasn't the Son of God, that yes, in fact, the Spirit of God had come and and settled on Jesus at the baptism, but that Spirit, uh, at the very least, left him prior to uh, his crucifixion. And so it was total heresy, and so John is writing the entire Gospel of John to battle that thought that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. That's why he starts out with John chapter 1, verse 1, with those powerful words, in the beginning was the Word. What was the Word? Jesus was the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John spends the first 11 chapters of his gospel uh, giving seven different signs or seven different events that definitively pointed to Jesus as the Son of God, that only God himself could have done these things. And guess what the seventh sign was? It was Lazarus. And Lazarus had been brought to, back to life. And so here we are, about 30 days after Lazarus had been brought back to life, and Mary, recognizing that she's in the very presence of God himself, knows that the only appropriate response is to worship. And her worship leads her to this place of, of complete abandonment. So what we learn from Mary and her worship of Jesus is that a completely sold-out follower of Jesus Christ is willing to sacrifice everything, anything that they have, as an act of worship. Now we'd like to think that when somebody does something like this, that everybody else present that that evening would have been moved to a, a similar display of worship, but John tells us that that didn't happen And so that leads us to the second lesson for a completely sold-out follower of Jesus Christ, and that's to be prepared for naysayers. Be prepared for naysayers. I skipped over a fascinating detail of this story earlier. It says in verse 3 that Mary anointed the feet of Jesus and then wiped his feet with her hair. You know, I wonder if this is another one of those uh, children's church stories that we have told so often in VBS or children's church, and we've colored the picture so many times that we begin to lose the wow factor of exactly what was happening here. Not only did she pour out something of incredible value, but she did it in a way that made zero sense to everybody else that was in the room that night. Now listen, it would have been common to anoint the head of a special guest with this oil. 
Okay, that feels a little weird to us. It wasn't to them. What would have happened is a a special guest like Jesus would have come in that evening and they would have poured a a few drops of this nard into his hands and he would have used it almost like a a dry shampoo or a a styling gel of some sort to to rub through his hair and to get the... uh, all the dirt and the fuzz out of his hair and to maybe rub it into his beard a little bit. And so you, could, you would put it on someone's head, but you would never put it on their feet. To put it on their feet was, was shocking. And don't forget, Jesus had just walked 15 miles up the side of a mountain in his sandals, okay? His feet were probably nasty. Now, they had already been washed undoubtedly, but only a servant would touch someone's dirty feet. And then John says, not only does she pour this oil out on his feet, but then she rubs it around with her hair. Listen, guys, this is weird even back then. Okay, we read it and we just think it's kind of normal because we've heard the story so many times. I'm telling you, it was weird. Jewish women did not do this. Their hair was a prized possession. They never went out in public. They never let men see them with their hair down or uncovered. Their hair represented their their glory or their self-worth. It was part of their identity that they lived uh, hidden. That They did not let it out for other people to see. It was a very intimate thing to let your hair down. You protected your hair fiercely. And so to take your hair, which represented your uh, self-worth, and to not only let it down freely, but to let it touch someone else's feet, their stinky, gnarly, nasty feet... It was a humiliating thing to do. And the fact that Mary was willing to do this at a meal in the presence of others communicates volumes about her elevated regard for Jesus. But look what happens in verse 4. It says, but Judas, one of his disciples, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now listen, culturally speaking, just about everybody in this room was probably like a little taken aback at what Mary was doing, and they were probably glad that Judas spoke up. Like, thank goodness somebody said something. Thank goodness somebody acknowledged the elephant in the room. In fact, these are the first words that Judas, uh, recorded of Judas in all of the Gospels. And at a glance, they hit home. Like, why are we letting her do this? Think about all the little children we could feed with this money. He speaks in a very condescending tone. The original language, it was, it was very belittling to Mary. Here's Mary. She's offering Jesus everything that she has. And one of Jesus' disciples is shaming her and telling her how ridiculous she is. And church, this is exactly what happens when you begin to, to cut across the grain and, and worship Jesus with abandon. Listen, at best, people are going to tell you you're crazy. And some people are going to get aggravated with you and treat you with disgust. And others are going to get angry at you. There's a story here of somebody at LHC that recently gave their life to Jesus. And at the point of salvation had to count the cost of what that meant. Because it was very likely that their family was going to abandon them. Just a few days after this meal, Jesus in his final last words with his disciples in John chapter 15... He says this to the disciples, and I wonder if he he said this with this thought in mind with what Mary had done. He tells his disciples, he says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. 
If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you are not of this world. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, listen, be prepared. Don't be surprised when people respond negatively to your message. Folks, here we are, this anointing of Mary, this ultimate act of humility, the ultimate act of of worship. We're celebrating this very act 2,000 years later, and yet in the moment there was immediate backlash and friendly fire, if you will. One of the very practical lessons from this narrative is to not be discouraged in the face of criticism. Because when you become sold out for Jesus, you're going to encounter people like Judas that have little appreciation for your heartfelt acts of devotion. We don't get to see the verbal response from Mary. Culturally speaking, she probably didn't respond. Women did not speak uh, in that setting, and so she probably didn't say anything, but I would love to have gotten in her head. As Judas is belittling her, She had to have been thinking, like, this is the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's right here at our table in our house. This is the one that turned water to wine. This is the one that that, that healed the nobleman's son. Do you guys remember when he fed the crowd of 5,000? Do you remember when he healed the man at the pool? Do you remember when he walked on water? Do you remember when he healed Lazarus? This is the Son of God. He alone is worthy of my attention and my devotion this evening. Church, listen, nothing that we could ever offer God could be enough to merit His love for us. But those that recognize His love offer the best that they have. It's exactly what Mary's doing. She's lavishing this priceless gift on Jesus without regard to what the people around her are going to think or say or even accuse her of. Such an incredible lesson to be learned from this, and it has challenged me this week uh, like you wouldn't believe. Takes us to our final lesson to be learned from this encounter with this completely sold-out follower of Jesus Christ. We see in the text is that now is the time to worship. Now is the time to worship Look at verse 7. Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. He immediately jumps in. He immediately cuts Judas off. The original text seems to indicate this was a pretty curt response. Kind of the fatherly tone of a dad that's turning around and telling his kids in the back seat to knock it off. So what do we know about Judas at this point? At this point, he had not yet betrayed Jesus. That history had not yet been written. Some scholars uh, have kind of wondered aloud if perhaps this was a turning point for him. That the embarrassment of Jesus disagreeing with him publicly, the embarrassment of Jesus um, rebuking him, that perhaps this was the moment where he said, hey, enough's enough, and he turned and made up his mind that now he would betray Jesus. Ultimately, that's what he did, turn Jesus into the authorities. Now, we don't have to wonder what John thought about Judas. Look back at verse 6. And Judas said this to Mary, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. I love looking at the original language. I know sometimes you guys get sick of hearing me talk about it, but it's so fun to look back at these words. And the word thief in the original Greek was klepto. 
That's where we get our word kleptomaniac. He was the first kleptomaniac. And John recognized that. John said, listen, he had ulterior motives right from the very get-go. But Jesus sees right into Judas' heart, and he, and he leaps to Mary's defense. Look back at verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you'll always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now there's a little debate as to what that phrase meant, let her keep it for the day of my burial. Is he talking about let her keep it for this day? Is he talking about let her keep it for a few more days? Uh, there's confusion in the original language. There's also some people that are confused by the fact that Jesus is, is Jesus saying uh, not to care for the poor here. I think we can make a pretty strong case that's not true uh, when we look at all of Jesus' teaching about how we love our neighbor, so it's not that. What is he saying? But if you pull back, what Jesus, I think, is saying is he's affirming this act of worship by Mary of Bethany. He's graciously accepting this anointing, which to everybody in the room would have been strange at best and wasteful at worst. He's giving this act of worship some level of, of theological significance. She had no idea that hundreds and thousands of years later, not hundreds of thousands, but thousands of years later, we would be, be looking at this and modeling things in our life after this. But in the moment, he, he rushes to her defense. And it's as if he's saying, listen, don't wait to see what I'm going to do for you in the future. Don't, don't hold back for some time when I may bless you later. The, the time now is to worship. I noticed something fascinating about Mary of Bethany this week. She seems to be one of the few people that's hanging out with Jesus at this point that seems to understand uh, the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection. See, Mary had listened to Jesus talk about his death, burial, and resurrection. He, he had talked about it many times, uh, albeit cryptically. But she would have heard that, and she's beginning to understand it when Jesus said at the tomb, at Lazarus' tomb, when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And all of a sudden, a light goes off some, somewhere in Mary's soul. She understood that Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, would die for the sins of the world. She understood that he would be buried, but she also understood that death would not hold him. And she was convinced, maybe more than anybody else in the room that day, that Jesus would rise again. A commentator this week pointed out, I, I, I'm just absolutely fascinated by this, you won't find Mary of Bethany at the cross or at the tomb. You find several other Marys, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene. But you don't find Mary of Bethany at the cross or at the tomb, and it wasn't because of fear, and it wasn't because of despair. You see, she had no need to be at either place because she was already standing on resurrection ground. She knew there wasn't going to be a decomposed body. She knew there was going to be no need for this fragrance to, to drench this corpse in, in a few days. She knew that Jesus uh, had already declared uh, that he was the resurrection and the life, that he would, in fact, rise again. So Jesus now is affirming the timing of her gift, that now is the time to worship. That even as the rest of the world is falling down around us, even as the, the poor continue to need help, we should first stop to worship. He's not saying it's either or. He's saying that 
It first has to start with worship, and then everything that we do flows from, from there. And so, church, here we are 2,000 years later. The events of this particular evening are inextricably tied to the final days of Jesus before the cross. And now, we, we, don't, we don't worship Mary of Bethany, but there are lessons to be drawn from her encounter. And honestly, I, I've told you this before. I said, as pastors, uh, we have to wrestle with this thing all week. You only have to wrestle with it for about 30 minutes. But here's some of the things that I have been wrestling with this, this week. This lesson that Mary held nothing back as she worshipped. Made me think, for some reason, of David in the Old Testament. And he said, I cannot sacrifice that which costs me nothing. And he said that because he understood that sacrificial love is the only kind of any value. And so Mary searched for the thing of great value and poured it out completely at the feet of Jesus. And so that's one of the questions to wrestle with this morning. Does the offering that you bring give evidence of sacrificial love? Does the offering that you bring give evidence of sacrificial love? Or do we hold back just a little bit of our time our talents, and our treasures, content to give Jesus just enough to keep him happy. There's another question I've been wrestling with this week. You know, culturally speaking, Mary had to have a sense, like she had to have known that this was incredibly weird, that this was strange. But she did not let the fear of man you understand what that is? The fear of man is the fear of what other people, how other people may respond. She did not let the fear of other people dictate how she chose to worship. She was unashamed of her love for Jesus. And so friends, this morning, do you serve him? Do you talk about him? Do you tell others about what he has done in your life? Do you do that without abandon? Do you do that without care of what other people are going to say about you or think about you or even accuse you of? Or have you let your anticipated, their anticipated response shape how you be, believe, shape how you worship? And finally this, are you just going through the motions with no real thought of what it even means to live a life of worship? Is your only uh, act of worship reserved for what takes place here on a Sunday morning during this one hour on the Sundays that you just happen to be here? Or does the testimony of your life Give evidence that you are a completely sold out follower of Jesus Christ like Mary of Bethany? Or does the evidence paint a different picture? That's what I want you to wrestle with this morning. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And just for the next few minutes, without any distractions going on around us, To, to wrestle with some of these things. Like we look at the life of, of Mary. In some ways, sometimes I think it's so detached from our reality that we just think, yeah, that's just, that's cute, that's a neat story. It's, 
Save that for our kids. But John included this in his gospel, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with a purpose, with a specific reason, and that is for you today. And so this morning, I want you to ask yourself, what is the most costly thing that I've ever given to Jesus? You know, as you wrestle with that question, you may be surprised to learn that it has nothing to do with finances. But what you're giving to Jesus, is it costing you anything? Or is it just a little something extra that you have to give him? The other thing that I've been repenting of this week is how I have let the fear of man, the fear of what other people may think. And I've allowed that to shape some of my behavior. And so maybe this morning there in the quietness of your seat, you can repent of that. You can ask God to give you the boldness once again to share about Jesus, to tell others about the incredible miracle he's done in your life. And to do so without fear of what they're going to say or think or accuse you of. Maybe you're in the room this morning and you say, hey, listen, the evidence in my life paints a pretty bleak picture. Maybe it's because you haven't even given your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you have not yet declared in your soul that Jesus is the Son of God. And for you, the greatest act of worship this morning would be to repent and believe, to repent of your sins, to ask forgiveness for those things uh, that stand between you and a holy and just God. And to cast those at the feet of Jesus. And in forgiveness, to turn and walk in newness of life. Our Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that you've chose to include this story about Mary of Bethany in Scripture. I'm so grateful that we've been able to peel back the layers a little bit this morning and to look at it and see the significance of what she had done. And God, I pray that we would walk out of here this morning not thinking that that was a cute little story. That was kind of neat what Mary had done. But we would walk out of here convicted that we would walk out of here changed. And that tomorrow as we encounter our friends and family and our coworkers, that people would look at us and notice something different. Because tomorrow, God, I pray that we'll look more like Jesus than we do today. God, I pray for those in the room this morning that are living outside a relationship with you. God, I'm grateful for the testimony week after week after week after week how people are giving their lives to Jesus during this time in our service. And so I pray this morning, God, that you would draw the hearts of those in the room that are living outside of a relationship with you, that you would draw them to yourself, that God, today they would repent and believe. And I'm grateful for the opportunity we have to serve you, to worship you, to study about you. 
to cast our cares and concerns at your feet. More than anything, I'm grateful for Jesus who set his face to Jerusalem. Knowing that my sin would separate me from Jesus or from God forever. And so Jesus, knowing that, paid the price for me so that I could come into the presence of a holy and just God. Grateful this morning for your love and mercy and grace. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.